You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with the EV-focused, the driven and one step off the grid. And joining me as usual, just back from Melbourne, is ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, I trust your trip to Melbourne was well and I trust your flight was safe and sound. Uh, flight was safe and sound, no thanks to me. Uh, uh, it was great, uh, weather was beautiful in Melbourne last couple of days and I was down there for the opening of Mint Renewables, amongst other things, and it was great to hear the Victorian Minister, uh, Lily D'Ambrosio, uh, pointing out the many achievements that Victoria has made and the progress it's had, and uh, a lot of developers there for the opening. Look, it's really interesting, actually. Uh, we keep on forgetting that Victoria has probably got the uh, most ambitious legislated uh, renewables target um, in the country and probably the world, actually. 95% renewables by 2035, which isn't bad for a, a, a state which has um, probably got the most polluting grid at the moment, thanks to its uh, legacy brown coal generators. So quite some transition there. What's your sense? We actually got an interview very much about um, what's happening in Victoria coming up very soon, but just very briefly, um, David, um, what's your sense of, of progress down there? Well, I, I think there is going to be a lot of progress. Uh, my sense is that uh, uh, the Victorian uh, state government is getting on with a lot of things. As you know, they've taken transmission back uh, control away from uh, AEMO. Uh, and they've got a, a fairly good program. I, I'm encouraged uh, at the way that they're going about transmission development and big focus on putting the people first, a big focus on REZs and, you know, the Model B, which I think is an excellent model, that if you want to get something done in an REZ, the EISs will be relatively easy, uh, maybe. Uh, when I, You know, they'll be carefully done and maybe even REZ-wise, wide and if you want to do it somewhere else but uh, it'll be a lot tougher uh, despite that there are still uh, developers are you know very grumpy about certain things like uh, three pairs of brolga uh, uh, can can kill a wind farm that's been 10 years in development even though brolgas are nesting under the macarthur wind turbines uh, which I half jokingly said wouldn't surprise anyone because those turbine blades never spin but let's let's hear a great <laughs> interview about victoria today well, that's right. Yes, and speaking about Victoria, um, one of the most interesting things that they've done, and possibly the most controversial things that they've done, is to um, recreate the old State Electricity Commission, the Victoria SEC. Um, it's been charged, um, given a billion uh, a billion dollars to go and seek out four and a half gigawatts of uh, new renewables and storage, and co-invest with um, the lucky developers. And um, last week, it made its first investment, a very significant battery the Melbourne Renewable Energy Hub in partnership with Equus. And um, David and I caught up with Chris Miller, the uh, CEO of the Victoria SEC, and um, this is what he had to say. Uh, Chris Miller, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Pleasure to be with you, Charles and David. Well, the SEC, the uh, State um, Energy Electricity Corporation, has been talked about for some time, um, a lot of interest, um, a little bit of controversy um, around its role. Uh, this week, um, you have come out with the first 
of your investments, $251 million for equity stakes. And what is a really interesting project, actually, it's a really big battery, one of the, one of the biggest in the, in the country um, and the world. It's on the outskirts of Melbourne. Um, it has, um, well, the first stage that you've invested in has three different batteries, and I guess we might talk about that um, later on. Two 200 megawatt, two-hour batteries, and the four-hour battery, which I think you're going to um, have an active role in managing and operating. Tell us why this made an interesting um, uh, project for your first investment. And I should probably just point out that um, your partner in this project or the developer of the project is Equus, um, the, um, the, the uh, private investment company, which has a bunch of different battery projects around the country. And this will be its first as well. Thanks very much, Giles. Yesterday was a, was a really exciting day for SEC and also for our new project partner, Equus Australia. Um, in that it was a day to announce our very first investment and a really significant one at that. The SCC is now the, the, the proud part owner of um, what you've described as one of the world's largest battery projects. We're, we've taken a, a significant equity stake in that project um, uh, with a value of $245 million. That's the size of our investment uh, in the project. And um, it's now, as a result of the SEC's um, work in partnership with Equus, uh, moving into and in fact has moved into the construction phase. Um, we think it's a, a particularly uh, good project, and um, we're able to really assess that project against um, other options through the market search process that we kicked off early this year. We actually got to work pretty quickly in the SEC in um, sounding out the market and inviting the market to bring forward proposals for projects that we could partner on. We're actually really overwhelmed by the response. We got over 100 registrations of interest to that market search process and carried forward a number of, com a number of conversations with um, a, a large number of projects. This one was the standout, though, and a standout for a couple of uh, major reasons. The first is that it is of really significant scale and will um, bring into the market some critically needed capacity, um, which of itself will enable more renewable development in Victoria. So that supports one of the SEC's key strategic objectives, which is to accelerate the transition and bring online more renewable energy um, more, more quickly. The second reason that the project was really attractive to us is that it directly supports and speaks to our strategic plan, which we released um, at the end of October. That was another really pleasing milestone for us. Uh, you've probably seen in the strategic plan that we aim to be supplying customers. We aim to be a market participant and our first customer will be a fairly major one, the Victorian government. Um, we've been lucky enough to get access to um, uh, lots of energy to supply to government in the form of those VRET contracts, those long-term support contracts. But what we needed was an ability to firm that, that energy with some capacity and we'll get that capacity um, through the arrangements that you've just outlined, Gild, including access to the one of the three modules and the dispatch rights in, res, in respect of that 200 megawatt module. 
Yeah, it's interesting because you've chosen to have a four-hour storage, so there's going to be three 200-megawatt modules. Um, Equus is going to be running two of them, and there's a two-hour thing because they just sort of see that as the ideal for sort of, you know, um, I think mostly arbitrage, sort of target in the evening peak and probably FCAS and a few other things. You've wanted your component to be a four-hour storage. Um, why is that? Is that more to do with the nature of the contracts that you'll be delivering to the Victorian government and the mix of generation? Um, and I guess one of the big questions from uh, I got back from the um, from the market was well how are you going to be deploying that and th th there was one you know bit of concern about you know are you going to be there kind of flattening the prices and spoiling for everybody else or is this really just part of a firm capacity delivery um, um, and, and I guess that just sort of kind of speaks to some of the concerns about you know having this government player in the market although people should be used to it because it happens in a lot of other states <laughs> yeah there's a few I think there's a few elements in response to that Giles um, we're a, an overall 38.5% investor in the whole project. So we've actually got an exposure to the, the merchant modules as well, uh, the, 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 the two, of the, two of the three. And that was something that we did quite del deliberately in that we, like Equus, are aiming to participate in the market to, um, to secure commercial returns. And uh, one of the reasons this project was attractive for us is that we know that there is a little bit, there's sort of a, a mixed view across the market at the moment as to the attractiveness of merchant batteries. Obviously, Equus has a very strong view and a strong appetite for investing in merchant assets. So do we. Um, and it made sense for us commercially to participate in those two modules as, as well as the third, um, over which we have a... Um, a much higher level of control through uh, buying capacity in that third module. But our motivations for that third module really are no different from any other market participant that's seeking to secure capacity or a capacity product in the market in that we have, um, we have uh, now a commitment to serve um, government and to meet a really significant load across a number of government operations and government sites. We have a portfolio of energy uh, contracts, renewable energy contracts through those VRAT arrangements, but we need to firm them. And we need to firm them in, in a way that ensures that we can deliver value for money for government. So we are um, approaching eight, the, the third side, the, the third of those, uh, those 200 megawatt batteries um, in the same way that really any market participant would approach a capacity product. Um, and and that's that's to ensure that it delivers returns for the SEC, but also ensures that we can deliver um, uh, return from our supply to to government. Chris, it's uh, interesting uh, to look at Victoria, which we haven't talked about here on the Energy Insiders podcast that much. Electricity prices are very low in Victoria at the moment, and I'm sure when you were evaluating the projects and putting together the, the quite comprehensive strategic plan, you, you, you had to think about not just the immediate situation, but the situation out to, say, 2030. And I guess in a couple of years' time, the closure of your lawn's going to loom quite large. Um, putting the battery storage in place is one thing, but Actually, it doesn't seem to me that Victoria at the moment is going to have enough uh, bulk uh, energy of wind and solar. Uh, maybe you could just... Uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts about the whole next six or seven years to the extent that you have some and the role that the SEC is going to play in ensuring that um, uh, Victoria has enough electricity at a competitive price. 
Yeah, thanks, thanks, Dave. We we certainly looked um, well beyond the next couple of years and the the, the pricing that we're seeing at the moment, um, as any investor would do. We looked at the expectations of um, forward energy pricing across Victoria. Um, I think you're right to call out the closure of your lawn as as one of the um, factors which will um, have it have, have an impact, have a bearing on the supply and demand equation in Victoria. Um, the I suppose it's to come back to your question about the need for variable generation, the starting point for the SEC um, for, is that we've got access to those and will have access to those um, VRAT contracts, those long-term support contracts. So in terms of what we need in order to support our customer base, um, we're, we're pretty we're pretty good in terms of variable generation. There's more that we will absolutely need to invest in and support. Um, but the, the more critical gap for us at the moment is firming product. And that's that was really driving our focus through this this first investment process and it will be a continuing focus for us in the near term. Um, which as I said, isn't to say that we will uh, ignore variable generation. I think we will um, absolutely look to bring online new wind and, and solar projects across Victoria. But equally, I would expect that there'll be plenty of other market participants that are focusing on that as, as well. Um, and I've got no doubt that the the recent Commonwealth Government announcement on the CES will have a uh, have, have an effect in incentivising some of that investment as well. Yeah, and I, I, I'm just interested in in your strategic plan. For instance, you talked about the market context and the market needs, uh, and you mentioned the. I guess my question is to keep it simple: uh, What's the transmission situation like in Victoria for the connection of new? power in your opinion? Um, Dave, I suppose from the SEC's perspective, we, as we assess projects, we'll, we'll absolutely look at um, all of those factors and uh, the, the ease of connection to the transmission system and the capacity that's available in the transition um, system. We will get through our work, I think, a pretty good handle on those those issues and to the extent that there are constraints, those constraints. And we know that there are constraints. One of the most important things the SEC can do um, in relation to that is provide those on the ground direct market insights to other parts of government. Um, but to be to be clear, the SEC um, won't have a direct role in relation to transmission planning, transmission coordination, transmission delivery. That's really the remit of our sister agency, VicRid, that's been set up in the Victorian government to um, over time take on that system planning role and, and bring online necessary transmission infrastructure. That's for sure. But uh, uh, I, I guess what I see is when I talk to some of the people that talk about solar projects is, uh, you know, not to mention the very low spot prices, but uh, which the storage will, I suppose, uh, or could help. Um, but also just the terrible MLFs that you can get for new projects. And, and just generally, it doesn't, uh, you know, I, uh, the social license issues and <laughs> to, towards wind and solar. Uh, it just, um, I was just asking, I guess, about the general willingness uh, in Victoria, as you see it, to, to, to actually uh, get the job done. Uh, particularly, you know, I guess, the challenges of the offshore wind also sitting out there. I mean, it's quite a difficult landscape for a developer in some some ways. Mm. And um, I, look, I don't want to speak for my colleagues across government, but that's what you just described, Dave, is exactly why the Victorian government set up VicRid. 
to um, move away from the traditional reactive RIT-T tests for transmission investment and um, find ways to um, plan out projects, engage with communities and be more preemptive and proactive in driving new transmission investment. That's exactly what VicRid's been set up to do, including in relation to the transmission infrastructure that offshore will require. So that work is all underway and um, I'd be certainly happy to refer you on to Alastair Parker, who's the CEO of VicRid. But within the within the SEC's remit, I think there are some powerful things that we can do to address some of those concerns, not all of the concerns you've talked about, and bringing on new storage um, in strategic locations in Victoria will help. It will help. And the project that we announced yesterday is an example of that. Uh, Dave Russell, the uh, MD of Equus, talked about this yesterday in some of his press remarks, that that, that battery, the 600 megawatt uh, Melbourne Renewable Energy Hub, is located highly strategically, almost next to the 500 kV transmission lines, um, and uh, really at a point of intersection between the three renewable energy zones in the west of Victoria and the rest of the Victorian network. It's almost halfway between Portland and um, the Latrobe Valley um, and marks that halfway point along that key trunk infrastructure. We are confident that that's going to bring online um, more renewables, more solar and more wind projects, particularly in the west of Victoria, by addressing some of those capacity factors and constraints you've talked about. Thanks. I'll turn back to Giles in a second, but I'll just ask the uh, analyst's humble question about uh, battery uh, uh, prices and costs, uh, you know, to throw a number out there, I've been hearing a number around uh, uh, $700,000 a megawatt hour. And I guess that I've always thought that a four hour battery can uh, have a lower unit cost than a two hour battery because it needs things like less inverters. To the extent that you can, I just wondered what you could uh, say about what you saw about uh, battery prices and costs and trends and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I probably can't get into too many of the specifics um, publicly, Dave, but uh, we, we did see through the project um, some of those economies of scale that you've talked about. As you increase the depth and storage volume of batteries, um, you, you certainly do see some synergies, particularly in terms of the cost of shared infrastructure. Um, and that was that was one of the one of the reasons that we could make sense of the four hour the increase in storage volume from two hours to four hours. Um, I probably can't get into any more specifics in terms of the unit cost pricing, but what I, what I would say is that um, that was a that increase in storage volume, that increase in depth was a really important point for the SEC. And we had been very public earlier this year in setting out our criteria, including that we we wanted to be additive. We want to be complementary to the market and bringing something that um, others aren't necessarily bringing. And I'm confident in saying that through our negotiations, we actually increased the scale of the project from an overall 1.2 gigawatt hours in storage volume to 1.6 gigawatt hours in storage volume. That was a direct result of the SEC's involvement and what we asked of the project. And I think... Uh, we also, through what we could bring through to the negotiations, ensured that project could get to financial close at that scale uh, m- much more quickly than it would have otherwise achieved. Hmm. So you mentioned the fact that um, there's about 100 different project proposals that you received. Um, what happens to those projects now? Do they have to go and find another avenue to market? Are you going to be reviewing some of those projects that were um, delivered to you, the most attractive ones, in, in the next stage of your um, investment decisions? And maybe you can sort of talk about the, your, your, your timetable. 
One of the interesting and I think novel things about the SEC, Giles, is that we, we're we not um, a standalone passive government procurement program or incentive program. We, we've always said we're going to be an active market participant and operate a little bit differently from a uh, the way a department might engage with the market. This this project's a good example of that. But so too was the search process where we're not saying we've drawn a line in the process now that we've announced our first investment. We will continue to speak to a number of the projects that submitted registrations of interest. And in fact, um, a number of them submitted more detailed proposals to us. We'll, we'll continue to be in discussions with those um, proponents to see if we can find a way for that project to make sense for, for both the proponent and for the SEC. So we're certainly not done with that pipeline. And in fact, that was one of the reasons we, we structured the process the way we did. We wanted to get our first investment away, but also begin stocking that pipeline of future investments. And are they wind, solar storage and in, 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 any, in, any insight into what sort of technologies we're talking about? Um, com- a combination. Um, mm-hmm. I think the numbers are around about 30 gigawatts of storage was bid in and about mm. 25 gigawatts of variable generation, um, which was more weighted well, towards you've got, you've got You've got plenty to choose from then. We, 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 we do, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, so how are you going to work in with the capacity investment scheme? Because that seems to be, um, in fact, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. In fact, I think well, the, whole, the whole market really is intrigued about how that's all going to work and how it kind of dovetails dove dove, dove with the uh, with VRET and then your own investment decisions. Have you still thought about that? We, we have um, brief, briefly, and I've probably got to spend some time listening to your um, analysis of this, Giles. I understand you've done some um, podcasts on exactly this issue. So I need to spend a bit more time unpacking it. But based on what I know, I would say that we are welcoming of the announcement. I would describe it as bold action by the Commonwealth Government and action undertaken in the same or similar spirit to the action to re-establish the SEC, which was on any view a pretty bold move, I think, by the Victorian Government. So I think bold action is required given the scale of the transition and the inevitability and importance of the transition. Um, what exactly it means for the market, what exactly it means for the SEC is going to be a product of the detail that will, I'm sure, be revealed over time. Um, my hypothesis, though, is that it will be complementary to what the SEC is seeking to do, but it's all it's all about exactly what risks that CIS is designed to manage and protect against um, to the extent that it's aiming to secure um, revenue to, to enable projects to secure project financing, and that's the extent of it. Well, I think there's plenty of room then for um, market participants, including the SEC, to come in and uh, partner with projects and develop projects. But it's a question of detail. Yeah, so just going back to one of the first things I just want to mention before, you know, there's a degree of suspicion, I think, about the SEC, and I think that's sort of fair to say. I mean, sort of many people welcome it, some people sort of think, great idea. But so in this idea about, and I think some of the market, they, they maybe they haven't quite got their heads around what you're going to be doing and why, and they're kind of trying to work out whether you're kind of friend or foe in the sense of, you know, your sort of participation into, into the market. How can you just sort of address that? Yeah, it's, it's something that we've wrestled with quite a lot. Giles, and um, I, I know there was a lot of commentary and suspicion, and I, I've been asked by, by many people about those sorts of issues. Um, we do go some way to addressing that in the strategic plan that we released at the end of October. And 
one of the key aspects of that plan is in the guiding principles that will guide our choice of investments and our choice of activities. So we've got three guiding principles. The first being that we'll invest with a view to serving public purpose, to invest in what we know the system actually needs to operate reliably and to deliver more affordable pricing to consumers. Um, we will invest, this is the most important bit for, for the purposes of this question, we'll invest in a way that aims to enable the market, that um, either provides channels for private capital to continue flowing into Victoria, um, makes it more attractive for um, our private partners to invest in Victoria. But even for those uh, investors that might not partner with the SEC, that might be investing separately, we're trying to invest strategically in those things which we know will attract more investment. And this big battery project is a great example of that where, as I've said, it's going to unlock development opportunities, particularly in those three western and southwestern renewable zones. Um, so market enablement is, is one of our three principles. Um, and our third is that we're aiming to achieve sustainable returns. And this is really designed to address some of the early suggestions or fears that we would come in and overpay and crowd out and cannibalise opportunities. We're going to be competing on a level playing field, um, aiming for commercial returns in the same way that our partners aim. No one has watched Snowy uh, could ever imagine that a government entity doesn't have an interest in commercial returns or even the Queensland government-owned entities from time to time. So... Mm. I, I'm more interested, well, I'm also interested in the other SEC functions that you mentioned, like uh, supporting the switch to all electric households. And of course, Victoria has been one of the leaders, along with the ACT, in um, disincentivising, uh, say, household use of gas in Victoria going forward. Um, uh, and um, the federal government has a one point something billion dollars, apparently, to help electrification, but you know, I, I wouldn't have a clue how to go about accessing that, and I'm not sure any business does either. I'm just wondering how that um, arm of your uh, functions uh, probably is not the most important one right now, but how it's going to what you're how you're thinking about that. Yeah, it's a, thanks, Dave. No, it's it's it is a function that we're we are thinking about very carefully, and um, it's going to be important for the SEC to be out um, publicly over the course of next year. Um, testing what it is that we can actually do to support households to electrify. So I think the way I'd summarise it is that we know that there are two things that need to happen in Victoria to support a stable transition. We need to renewify the grid and we need to electrify our homes. And um, I think the various disincentives that you've talked about and the policy settings that you've talked about are a pretty fabulous start. It's actually meant that Victorians now talk about electrification to my memory, it wasn't a topic of conversation generally in the last, even 24 months ago, but it is a conversation now. I think the issue is that you've got homes that are starting to talk about this and hear this concept of electrification, but there's still pretty low awareness of what that means, what the what cost benefits can flow from electrifying your appliances, um, how the technologies work in comparison with uh, conventional or um, fossil fuel-based technologies. Um, and how then to access the suppliers and installers that are needed to um, make those make those switches. So we think that all presents pretty significant opportunity for the SEC, um, beginning with awareness raising, just ensuring that households have a clear understanding of the benefits that can flow and the fact that there's availability out there already. Um, but we'll, we'll go further than that and see whether there's things that we can do to make the process of um, choosing 
technologies, potentially even installing them, choosing suppliers, a little bit simpler and less complex for for houses. And the third function uh, there was the, the workforce kind of thing. And, you know, if I'm honest, um, uh, Victoria has a, a lower role in the ISP's view of the future considered as a, as a share of the NEM. And I'm... I'm um, and I can understand why that is, given that there is basically very good renewable resources in the north of Australia, and perhaps somewhat less, and uh, you know, in, in Victoria. Uh, <laughs> but uh, workforce skills and stuff is a challenge across the whole uh, of the industry that's mentioned. I think it's a challenge that can be met, but there's certainly a lot we can do to promote stuff. How, how are you thinking uh, about? workforce and skills and that thing those things yeah i think i think you're right uh, dave that it's it is a really big challenge but i think there's some things that we uh, we being the victorian government but also we being the sec can do in response to those things just in terms of the scale of the workforce challenges and workforce opportunities in victoria um I guess our, our maths is that in Victoria, government's made some very strong commitments to achieving 95% by 2035, and that's going to require about 25 gigawatts of new capacity to come online. That's large-scale variable and firming capacity, but it's also smaller-scale household-level um, and neighbourhood-level batteries and technologies. So th that is still, in Victorian terms, a huge amount of infrastructure uh, and technology to build and deploy. And that's going to create huge workforce opportunities. We estimate about 59,000 jobs will come from that, from meeting that demand if we're able to meet it over the next 10 years. And uh, there are things that the SEC is going to focus on doing and there are things that will support other parts of government to do. Um, but from an SEC perspective, we're aiming to be pretty vocal about some of these challenges and opportunities. We're aiming to be, um, a, a flag, I guess, a flag bearer for the the industry in um, being able to explain to students that there is a productive, fulfilling career to be had in renewables. And we're already out talking to high school students about what those careers could look like and how you can get into them. Um, so that's that's sort of the more basic stuff, um, which we'll just keep doing, already doing. There's, I think, a need for um, more coordinated workforce development uh, planning which will be uh, addressed through the Victorian Energy Jobs Plan, which is being developed by the Department of Energy here. They've committed to releasing that plan over the course of next year. That's something the industry's been calling for, and the Victorian government's responding to that. But you might have also seen, Dave, in the plan that the SEC is committed to establishing the SEC Centre of Training Excellence. And we are in the process of designing what that could look like at the moment, with the aim of having a business case go up next year. Um, we, we want to leverage the strengths that we think the SEC brings and has to make a contribution to those challenges. And I, I would imagine that it will include stronger efforts to attract workforce um, and potentially some efforts to build, build additional training pathways on top of those that are already available, particularly through the public training system. And this is one thing where I can see industry, industry has been calling for this, if you think about the transition to renewables, what you see across a lot of employers in Victoria is that there's not necessarily, particularly renewable employers, there's not necessarily agreement around what the um, requisite standards or qualifications for a particular worker might be, whether it's a turbine technician, a control room operator. A lot of these qualifications have been earned on the job 
without there being sort of a clear alignment across different employers as to what's required. So I think there's a contribution we can make there as well. I think there'll be a lot of software development, but I'll hand back to Giles. Yeah, I just want, just want to wrap it up because I know you've got a, a, a deadline. Chris, look, I just had one very final question that can be a quick answer if you like. Um, offshore wind, um, that's the big play that the Victorian government has taken. It's got sort of firm targets, uh, firm ideas of what it wants to do there. It's, a, um, it's an interesting industry. It's very much in its early stages here. What of any role are you seeing the SEC taking um, or is that something just sort of down the track? Joss, thanks. Yeah, we... Um we're not focusing on offshore wind in the immediate term. Um, I've, I've talked about Vic Reed, who's focused on the transmission side, but the department has set up the Offshore Wind um, Energy Victoria office to um, really do the hard work in thinking about um, how to deliver and incentivise the delivery of the infrastructure that's required there, both onshore and offshore, and then ultimately how to design the mechanisms that will um, attract the huge amounts of international investments required. So look, it's, that, that work is progressing in parallel with the SEC. Um, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it, but in the near term, we're focused on our four and a half gigawatt target, and that's largely through onshore development. Fair enough, well, that probably means that there's no sort of offshore wind um, representatives in your waiting room outside, sort of hopefully, with a hopeful look on their face, but um, <laughs> probably plenty of solar storage and onshore wind people. Look, yeah. Chris Miller, I know you have to, to run. Look, thank you very much for making time available to talk to us on the Energy Insiders podcast. And um, yeah, good luck with the, um, with the next phase. Thanks very much, Giles. Thanks, Dave. Good to be with you. Thanks very much. Cheers. And that was Chris Miller from the Victoria SEC. Um, that was a really good interview, David. I learned, learned a lot from that. And um, look, it's um, it's pretty interesting. We're just we're just seeing so much more. I mean, I guess if you think about Chris Bowen's capacity investment scheme and and, and some of the things that are happening in New South Wales, and of course you've got the sort of the government-owned utilities in in Queensland and and uh, Western Australia and Tasmania, um, and you've got the South Australia investment in the various hydrogen projects um, in Wyala. Um, governments very much want to be involved. Yes, I think that's uh, that's clear, and there's quite clear there's a big role for governments. Uh, you know, the RIT uh, T test is, is not appropriate. Uh, we're going to hear a lot more and talk a lot more about transmission uh, with the next ISP, so uh, we should hold that discussion up until there. The other thing that came out of the my visit, to, you know, and, and, and Chris was all about batteries and stuff like that, but it's it's clear they want to do more um, onshore wind and solar, which is uh, my big focus. Um, uh, the one thing we haven't really heard uh, enough about yet is how to, the integration of the behind the meter. One of the big stories you keep writing about, which is very obvious, is there's more behind the meter solar uh, every, every year. Uh, and we can see its influence on electricity prices in spring. And that's going to be, as, as it grows, spring is going to get bigger and bigger in the scene. Um, uh, and so the, the integration of that is something that as, as big as the problem with planning for wind and stuff is, uh, I think the integration, which is really around AEMO's job, and I don't think AEMO's really doing a very good job on it. They're still treating it, it seems to me, as something that uh, is, is a problem rather than a solution, if I can put it that way. 
Look, here's an interesting question, David. Um, solar we're seeing is falling in price. Um, modules are now the lowest they've ever been. They've fallen 40% since 2020. Um, we had a new report out this week from Rethink Energy saying they're going to halve again um, over the next five or 10 years. I think if you talk to any of these sort of solar researchers at UNSW in Australia, they'll probably say the same thing. Wind energy costs are not falling, largely because there's a whole bunch of steel and they've got sort of supply chain issues and everybody else in the world wants to build wind energy. If we're going to have a really big disparity of price between wind and solar, um, one of the interesting things that Chris Bowen might have to think about when he's designing the capacity investment scheme is actually sort of providing different sort of incentives for wind, because if it's just like an open playing field, then solar would likely wind, even though I do accept that the value of solar in the middle of the day might be very much different to being at the night. But it's going to be an interesting way to think about that. And maybe if battery storage costs fall significantly, then maybe solar and battery is cheaper than wind. But it's it's an interesting thing to think about. We don't want just solar, but wind um, has an issue at the moment because of one of the complexity of getting approvals and, and, and dealing with community responses, but also it seems to be significantly more expensive than solar at the moment. One of the things I heard uh, down there in Victoria, and I think is right, I've heard before, is that landowners uh, themselves are actually pretty keen on wind. They make a lot of money out of it. It's the bloody planning departments that are uh, making life so difficult. Um, uh, but your, your point is good. I would note that actually battery costs, of course, went up quite a lot last year as well. Uh, and we're sort of confident that battery costs are going to come down. I think wind actually price turbine costs haven't changed in 12 months. You can see that very clearly by looking at the Vestas quarterly reports where they show the price per turbine in the latest quarter, uh, which is about a uh, million euro, I think, to 1.09, uh, almost identical to a year ago. Part of the cost increase in Australia is the soft cost increases, you know, the labour costs, well, the balance of system, everything except the actual turbines and, and, um, and, and or the solar, solar modules. So I'm of a view that actually the cost reductions uh, will resume their downward trajectory over time and that we can, Australia can still do a better job. And actually, it's not such a bad time really to be doing a wind farm if only the bloody, uh, you know, New South Wales planning department would actually push a few of these EISs through. The situation when I looked at uh, in the southwest zone is it would be easy to push some through. Push, they're all right next to each other. You know, just do one group of studies. In New England, uh, we could make a lot, pro, a lot of progress quite more quickly. Uh, anyway. Mm. Okay, um, look, might be worth doing a bit of a roundup of the news um, on that. I mean, you, it's interesting what you're talking about battery storage, and we had that very big battery um, at the Melbourne Renewable Energy Hub. We did an interview later on with Equus, and it was interesting that they were talking about doing the second stage of that um, battery hub, um, doing flow battery and looking at 12 hours of storage. Um, and we're seeing quite a lot of flow battery ideas emerge. Um, Stanwell is looking at an iron uh, flow battery in Queensland, there's vanadium flow batteries being talked about. Um, one of the things I haven't told you about, because it's actually an embargo as we're speaking, but it will be uh, announced by the time um, this podcast is, is broadcast, is confirmation that the compressed air storage project in Broken Hill 
um, is going ahead and that um, they've signed a deal with Transgrid to provide sort of emergency backup, which, which effectively means that they're just going to be replacing the ageing diesel plants and got a contract to provide part of that capacity as the backup there. Uh, that's quite timely because uh, four weeks ago they did some repairs there and one of the diesel generators broke down and the town was out of power for eight hours and not, pe- not many people were very happy about that. Um, and um, while I'm just sort of freestyling here, just well, like... we, 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 I, we should mention that you know my confidence has grown that um, HumeLink is going to actually get built uh, and pretty much on time. And as I said, the Orana transmission line. And then I want to give a shout out to Ted Woolley's place, uh, Ted Woolley's piece in Would the you? New Economy uh, this week uh, about the uh, Curry Curry gas plant. I don't always agree with everything Ted says. Uh, that's normal amongst us people that talk about stuff, but. Uh, I do very much agree that that gas plant uh, will be hard, have a hard work uh, justifying its uh, cost of capital. It, it, like every other project, it's got cost overruns and delays. I, I'm not too hard on Snowy uh, for that because, as I said, that happens all over the place pretty much. But I think the point about it really, of Ted's point, Wade, was the cost of the actual gas transmission there. And the fact that even with a huge gas bottle, it's still only going to be able to run for 10 hours. I mean, I'm of a view that you want more... <laughs> a 10-hour gas battery. <laughs> what, a, what a dream. I'm of the view, or more of the view, that more power is better than more duration. I'm not necessarily so keen to go chasing 12 and 24-hour storage. I think I'd rather have, you know, 10 units of the one gigawatt each that can do an hour each. And you just run them sequentially. Uh, if you need to, or you can run them all at once if you need to. There's much more flexibility that batteries can deliver uh, when they're configured that way that I I think is still something that uh, we're all coming to terms with. Interesting indeed. Yes, and look, while we're talking storage, um, Energy Australia also sort of um, announced the redesign of their Lake Lyle pumped hydro project, which could be one of the few pumped hydro projects in Australia that do actually sort of get to get built um, over the next sort of five to ten years. And just while we're talking about supply chain issues, I was fascinated by an AEMO report which looked at system strength, which came out this week and sort of identified various areas of the grid where sort of you know system strength is considered to be weak. And one of the points they made is that um, good luck trying to get a synchronous condenser brought into Australia. Australia, you've got at least a five-year wait, and that just seems to me to be um, opening up all sorts of opportunities for battery storage to do. Grid-forming um, inverters. Inverters. machines. Exactly. The, uh, the next challenge in those dials is to make sure how, how they all work together, and uh, Australia will. Australia, well, Australia is leading the world on this stuff, and, you know, I think the one area of policy federally uh, that, 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 that I would... Uh, we've all got our wish list, but I do think behind-the-meter storage is something that could solve a lot of problems quite quickly. Yes, and I think many more, many people are saying exactly that at the moment, and um, that's quite interesting. Look, um, one more thing before we wrap up is just to mention that the new Energy Minister for Western Australia has been announced. It's Rhys Whitby. Um, he is the current Climate Change and Environment Minister. Um, has been very much working with uh, the former minister, or the current but soon-to-be former minister, Bill Johnson, um, on the WA energy transition, recently sort of unveiled a whole bunch of sort of environmental sort of um, sort of planning initiatives, which sort of sweeps away uh, uh, sweeps away a lot of the sort of the, um, the green tape, as it were. So um, pretty much sort of, um, um, well, I, I sort of continue as they were. Um, good to see, I suppose, the energy... Um, uh, portfolio coming back to environment and climate change. The hydrogen portfolio has gone to the Premier, who also looks after sort of industry, and the mines and um, the mines portfolio has gone to the Minister of Ports, which is interesting too. So um, 
we shall see what Mr Whitby produces. But um, it seems to be very much sort of on the same message as the former minister, Bill Johnson. Uh, indeed. And I think that's a bit of a wrap for this week. Look, next week, um, lots of things happening. Um, everyone bringing out their sort of their, their, their clean and their dirty washing, I suppose. Um, um, one of the big things we're expecting is probably, well, we're still waiting for some results from the New South Wales um, tender. Um, they're looking for about... I, I think that's, that's, that's good news. That should be, a, hopefully, some kind of Christmas present. I mean, amongst the other things I'm looking for is some new projects. It's all very well... Uh, I can understand why existing projects can, can qualify for these LTSs because you don't want to discourage projects from going ahead just because while well, they're waiting for a tender outcome. But we, we want to hear some new projects. And I think uh, it gives insight too into the uh, capacity investment scheme because at the end of the day, the success of that scheme uh, is important to everyone and we're still coming to grips with this um, 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 uh, floor and ceiling concept as to exactly what will be bid in. And, you know, the word I'm hearing is that we hope the federal government or, or whoever's designing that will make the deposits for that really big, bigger than in New South Wales, so that if you bid into that scheme, you, uh, you've got a darn big and win something, you've got a big incentive to actually build it. Okay. We've also got the integrated system plan, the latest draft of the 24 in, in, um, integrated system plan coming out. Um, David, I did, we do need to mention Origin. The um, Look, the, the bid got uh, shot down as expected by um, Australian Super and about five minutes later Origin said it sees no need or reason to change its um, current slow pace of the green energy transition. Any thought about this whole thing? I mean I read a very strong piece about it saying I was pretty upset about it actually. I just sort of thought it was a bit of sort of sabotage by Australian Super. I mean maybe they've got their reasons for it but um, I was pretty disappointed with it. I mean it may not make that much of a difference considering we've now got the capacity investment scheme so a lot of that capacity will get built anyway but it just it's, it was um, bad form I, I thought. Know, I, I think the capacity investment scheme and how the Gentiles fit in uh, certainly got to be sorted out. Uh, look, Energy Australia uh, uh, must be uh, feeling uh, like it's got a date coming up soon, you know, like Brookfield's dated the, the, the two, two of the ugly sisters. Uh, and Energy Australia <coughs> may be the least attractive one, but if that's all that's available, well, uh, sometimes on Saturday night, that, that's the go, eh? Okay, that's an interesting way to leave the uh, podcast this week, David. Um, I'm going to leave that one past that without further comment. Uh, thanks very much to Chris Miller for joining on the podcast. Um, thanks to everyone listening out there. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. And we've got a couple more episodes to go before Christmas and the end of the year. Um, and next week should be a really good one. But uh, bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.